Hello, and welcome to another edition of The Brand Called You. This is a global podcast where we talk to some of the the world's most interesting thought leaders. And I'm happy to say we have one here today. Um, Dr. Daniel Schachter has been a professor of psychology at Harvard University since 1991. And his specialty is memory in all its facets, elusive, wily, unpredictable, unreliable, and ultimately life-saving. He first wrote about it in his book, Searching for Memory in 1996, and then later a seminal book called The Seven Sins of Memory, How the Mind Forgets and Remembers, um, which is where I first discovered him. Um, But he's also published many, many articles, and apparently, according to Google Scholar, um, they've been cited over 125,000 times, although I I bet he wouldn't quite remember each one. Um, He's received many, many awards, including Uh, Most recently, the award for distinguished scientific contributions from the American Psychological Association. And and perhaps most excitedly, his book, The Seven Sins of Memories, How the Mind Forgets and Remembers, is actually having its 20th anniversary edition, or it had its 25th anniversary edition. Excuse me, let me start again. The 20th anniversary edition has come out um, and with some revisions. and uh, I'm, I'm very excited to, to talk to you. So welcome. Uh, thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> so um, I, I hope you don't mind, but I might start with something a bit topical, and then we'll go to the more um, abstract. Um, again, I'm the daughter of scientists. Um, I, I even have an uncle whose license plate says E does not equal MC squared. So these are like serious geeks and nerds in my family. So I tend to see everything through the lens of science, even though I'm a, I'm a storyteller. Um, we hear so much today about the big lie. Um, and um, our former president is convinced that he won the election supposedly, and so are his many, many of his followers. And you know, in uh, I tend to to watch more of the liberal news, in which they always seem to attribute um, his his believing that to a lie. And I I tend to intuitively wonder if that's not true. I wonder if it's possible for one to gaslight themselves. So in other words, if you say something enough, is it possible that you could begin to remember it as such? And in turn, could it be possible that his followers are remembering it as absolute truth? Well, it's an interesting question, and it's hard to say definitively in, in any one case. What we know you know, more broadly is that certainly uh, repetition uh, will make just about any statement seem more believable or en- ex- enhance the experience of perceived truth. That's uh, something we all kind of, I, th- I think, intuitively know. In the laboratory, it's been studied under the rubric of something called the illusory truth effect. So just repeating a statement, unless it's you know totally outlandish and impossible, will increase perceived truth in in most people. And we also know um, that you know repeated retrieval of information from memory uh, strengthens uh, that memory. Um, and so you put those two things together, and I think it you know it certainly is possible uh, for someone uh, with enough repetition. Uh, to convince themselves of something that maybe at you know one time they uh, believed not to be true, or you know despite uh, outside evidence. Again, in the case of Trump, 
uh, it's really it's it's hard hard to get inside one person's head and and to say what the state of affairs is. But more generally, yeah, I think it's possible. Well, well let me ask because I think we're talking about first the the illusory truth within yourself, and then and then and then the way it's perceived by others. And this leads me to another question, which is he whether or not he believes it, he speaks with great passion and emotion when he says it. And does the fact that he's connecting what he's saying, whether it's a lie or whether he believes it, to emotion, does that make it more believable to the listener? Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't know that we have good evidence on that specific point from the psychological uh, literature. Uh, uh, that would be, you know, that would come down to the question of for highly emotional events, is there a greater illusory truth effect? That's a really interesting question. There could be something out there in the scientific literature that speaks to it, but I'm I'm not aware that uh, that it is. Uh, I think again, a lot would depend on the particulars of of the person, of the you know the issue uh, under discussion. Uh, but certainly, yeah, that that's at least plausible. I don't know that we have any evidence for it. So, you know, I'm I'm a professional storyteller and what I call myself now is a story strategist. So I go into companies and help them use storytelling. And I my specialty is scientists, right? So I work with a lot of data-driven people. And, you know, how do you, if you're a PhD researching, you know, the sweat under your arms for Colgate, how do you make that interesting? And so I always try to have them attached to an emotion and then hang the facts on that. Um, and one of the reasons I do that is there was some research out of Princeton, I think it was identified as neural coupling. Does that ring a bell, that phenomenon? Where what they found is if you deliver something and are emotionally connected to it, so the emotional regions of your brain are lighting up at exactly the same moment, the same regions in the brain are lighting up for the listener. Um, and yeah. I guess, yeah. Yeah, there has been has been work with uh, functional uh, neuroimaging showing that and related phenomena. Um, and we also know from the memory literature that certainly uh, emotional arousal is one of the most potent ways of enhancing uh, the vividness uh, and um, long lastingness of, of a memory. So from that perspective, from the perspective of the memory literature, certainly, uh, you know, that's that's a potent way of increasing the impact of of uh, advertising or just about anything else on memory. I, I hope you don't mind if I pick your brain a little but I I've, since I've been I always whenever I'm trying to get a scientist who's so in his head, you know, cognitive thinking to to be emotional. Um, the first thing I do is I ask for a personal memory, but what I've discovered, and I'm no scientist, this is purely by practice, and I would love to get your take on this. If I ask them to, for example, um, reach in an imaginary box and pick out an object that was precious to one of their grandparents, not even their parents, distant, an object, um, they're more likely to conjure up a more accurate and 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 distinct and, and passionate memory than if I say to them, what moves you um, about, you know, what moves you about your grandmother? So in other words, if I ask a direct question, they, they'll give me what they think is the right answer. If I distract them with an inanimate object memory, um, they seem to, it seems always to elicit a much more accurate response. And I haven't been able to identify what could be happening, but I've had such success reaching a, a reach grabbing for a random object out of the air or making it their great grandparents versus 
their own memories. Do you have any idea what might be happening? Well, it sounds to me like you might be in in the former case where you're getting the more emotional response, you know, targeting something much more specific and maybe a specific memory that they have related to, for example, their grandparents. And it's those specific autobiographical, what we psychologists call autobiographical memories, episodic memories, those tend to be, you know, very tightly tied to emotion. Whereas asking for, you know, a more general appraisal might lead you away from uh, autobiographical and specific memories that tend to be a bit more emotionally charged and thinking in more abstract terms. So I, I think that I think that your former question likely brings into play uh, memories that are, you know, have a better chance of being um, emotional, whereas your latter one is more targeted and kind of abstract conceptual thinking. But I was also wondering, like, if you ask somebody in a job interview, um, you know, um, how do you handle conflict? Well, give me some examples of the way you've handled conflict in the past. I have this feeling that there's a part of the brain that is also very sensitive to what they should say to expectation. Sure. And somehow if you relieve them of that responsibility by just saying, oh, tell me about that watch you're wearing. Um, and I, I guess I wanted to ask you how much of our memory is, is imprisoned by group um, expectation? Well, I think we are sensitive to social context. And so to me, it would just be less, less a question of memory per se, and more a question of, you know, how we want to use memory in a, in a social context, what we're comfortable revealing. So yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, memories are, are, are one among many things that we're going to bring to bear in a social interaction. And like anything else, uh, they are going to we're going to try to make them appropriate to a social context and a social interaction. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I found so fascinating also in your book was how, um, how deceptive memory is. So for example, I, I work, my mother is a Holocaust survivor and I also work a lot with them with storytelling. And um, when many of them were alive and I would do workshops, I noticed that they, they had begun to make themselves heroes in their own story. I, how does that work? Because I, I know they believed it. I know it was definitely believed and it it was a shift. And I wondered, was that like a, is that a, some sort of a survival mechanism? Well, uh, I think it's a pretty normal feature of memory. So when I, when I talk about the seven sins of memory, I have three that are different kinds of forgetting. And maybe we'll talk about those later. I call them sins of omission. And then I have four that relate to distorted and unwanted memories that I call sins of commission. That is when a memory is present, but it's either wrong or unwanted. And there's one of them that applies to the situation you just described, which I call uh, bias or retrospective bias, which is very normal, common part of memory where what we remember about the past is very much influenced by our current psychological state, our current needs, uh, desires, knowledge, beliefs, those all skew how we, how we remember the past. And one of uh, several kinds of retrospective biases I talk about in, in the book on the seven sins of memory 
is uh, kind of a, a self-enhancing memory bias. So there's a lot of really interesting research that's been produced by psychologists uh, that shows that we tend to sort of massage the past in ways that make, make us look good, uh, that kind of elevate the self. Very, uh, very common, very pervasive, and that may be exactly what's going on in the, in the stories that you're referring to, where people, as they remember these things over and over again, to tend to make themselves more uh, increasingly heroic, perhaps. Like uh, they they talk about grandiose thinking in in psychological terms. Is that you know taken to the extreme? Um, that might be a more extreme version of uh, of the kind of the normal self enhancing bias that social psychologists, cognitive psychologists have documented in in many different many different ways. And these lead to these can lead to something that the social psychologist uh, Shelley Taylor a couple of decades ago called positive illusions where we have you know positive illusions about ourselves that can be somewhat adaptive in the sense that you know maybe they maybe having a higher opinion of ourselves to some degree can encourage us to you know take chances or risks that we might you know mm-hmm. otherwise not they can be adaptive these positive lo- illusions but it, you know if we get too untethered from reality they can also get us into trouble are they culturally specific? Like, for example, it might be more advantageous to be a, a hero or to be a winner in American culture, for example, as opposed to I lived in the Netherlands for years where you're not supposed to stick your head higher up than anyone else. I wonder if you found that it's culturally specific. Yeah, there is research on that. And I talk about a little bit uh, about that in the book. And it's generally along the lines you suggest that, for example, uh, it, it's typically in the literature phrased as a contrast between Western and Eastern cultures. Western cultures, maybe American to the extreme, would tend to show this to a, a greater degree than uh, Asian Eastern cultures where the, the role of the self is more downplayed and, and you see that in a more um, modified uh, memory bias. So you talked about the sins of omission and I wanna ask you something else. And I, I, I think this is related to trauma, but. So my mother is, her name is Sharika, and she had two sisters, Rojika and Borishka. We used to call them the Gabor sisters of New Jersey. They they all um, handled their memories of the Holocaust differently, but the result was always the same, which was silence. So the two older sisters would always say to me, ask me anything you want. And whenever I would, they'd say, I just don't remember. My mother, on the other hand, would walk out of the room, her face would turn you know, hollow, so I knew she remembered, but refused to talk about it. And when people would push her, I would say, no, I intuitively feel that actually what's keeping her alive, and she's alive at 95, um, is her refusal to conjure memories. So I guess I wanted to ask you, is there something um, that's very, in a way, healthy about keeping tight secrets? Is there a danger in her revealing those memories? Uh Potentially, I mean, we have a tension here between a couple different dynamic processes in memory. On the one hand, one of the most potent ways of keeping a memory alive over time is to retrieve it and retrieve it either internally, mentally, or talk about it out loud to other people. So uh, the first of the three sins of commission that I talk about is transience, that is the notion that observation that all other things being equal, 
you know, memories from a long time ago are harder to retrieve uh, than more recent memories. So we know that there's a forgetting curve where we have very good memory for an experience at short delays, and there's a, usually a quick drop off and then a slower drop off over time. That's the curve of forgetting, or in my terms, kind of the curve of transience. And one of the things we know is that if you treat one of the ways you can slow down that forgetting is to retrieve uh, information, to kind of test yourself for memory. That can selectively slow down uh, the uh, loss of memory over time. So on the one hand, if you're not retrieving a memory, then you're more likely to lose access to it. But again, in the in the case uh, uh, in the case you're referring to. Um, not talking about a memory is not necessarily not retrieving a memory. So you may mentally relive it and keep it alive and just not dis disclose it uh, to other people. Uh, but on the other hand, yeah, um, one of the seventh sins of memory, the seventh sin of memory that I talk about, I refer to as persistence. So th these are highly emotional, traumatic memories uh, that can intrude on our minds, can keep us awake at night. Uh, they result from disturbing or even traumatic experiences. And they can be, for some people, psychologically uh, disabling. So not talking about or not retrieving a traumatic experience can buffer uh, you know, the negative uh, psychological effects of those uh, disturbing memories. They don't necessarily wipe them out of, out of your mind, but it can not thinking about them too much can take some of the sting out of those persisting intrusive memories. So you have the tension between these, these two things, not thinking about and talking about a memory may make you more apt to lose access to that memory uh, because the processes that result in transients forgetting over time kind of uh, take over, but may have some benefit in, in protecting, protecting you from um, the negative effects of, of remembering. Now, a really interesting phenomenon that I, I talk about in this updated version of the seven sins of memory uh, that's really been documented most extensively over the last uh, two decades since I wrote the original uh, book way back in 2001 is something called fading affect bias. And what fading affect bias uh, refers to is the fact that over time, we tend to, in most situations, lose the negative affect mm -hmm. from a disturbing experience faster than we lose the positive affect. Interesting. It's not necessarily the case that we forget the negative experience, uh, but uh, the uh, negative affect of, uh, associated with it tends to fade over time. And that is something that, uh, you know, can contribute to psychological, uh, psychological well-being. So one of the uh, one of the other more general points I may I made in the original Seven Sins of Memory book, and I, I updated in the revised version, is that um, we I call these things the sins of memory, the seven by analogy with these seven ancient de deadly sins, and they can cause a lot of problems and even havoc, wreak havoc in in, in everyday life, forgetting distortion and so forth, uh, persisting memories that keep us up at night. But I try to make the point that uh, these seven sins aren't really flaws or defects in memory, but they're, they're, they're kind of prices we pay for adaptive features of memory that make the system generally work well over time. And this fading affect bias, I think, fits in that category of kind of 
an adaptive form of forgetting that just kind of happens naturally. Again, it's not that we totally forget the negative experience that may persist, but that negative affect of, associated with it tends, uh, tends to fade over time. And maybe not talking about and retrieving a memory can contribute to that. And, and, and go, going back to the example of your mother, that might be a, an adaptive thing. In my own case, I, I was attacked uh, in a stairwell when New York was at its worst um, when I was 21. And for many years, I couldn't be in an enclosed space. And, and I was thinking about it the other day. I, I have none of that now. None of that now. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, that might be that might be over a long period of time. Uh, the operation of this fading affect bias that we just discussed. But, you know, I read a fascinating study. I think it was out of Milwaukee. They, the general understanding with civil servants was that if they went through a traumatic experience, you would have them debrief, talk about it. And there was some scientists that did a study with a fireman who had found a dead body um, charred and he realized it was a friend of his when he brought it to the morgue and he was very traumatized. And rather than debrief him immediately, they had him wait six months and write about the experience retroactively. Mm -hmm. And they found physiologically, he he fared better in every level. Is that sort yeah. of what you're talking about? Um, well, that's related. There is a, a specific line of research that's been associated with the psychologist, Jamie Pennebacher. This may have been his work or something that spun off of that, who uh, has shown that writing, specifically writing about traumatic experiences, uh, can help you work through them and help uh, produce a, uh, a better outcome in terms of relieving some of the, you know, distressing uh, symptoms that uh, accompany trauma. So yeah, that is a... Well, there's a time continuum, right? Because I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, how, how is it, is it healthier? How does your memory change over time? So when you imagine a trauma six months later, are, are you kind of repairing yourself by by remembering it six months after the event versus immediately? Um, I, I don't think you could say categorically that, you know, uh, that at one time you're repairing yourself more so than another. I think it depends on how you work through it. So one of the distinctions that people uh, make in this field, and I, I discuss in my chapter on persistence, is the distinction between sort of endlessly ruminating over time on oh. a traumatic experience, being sort of overwhelmed by negative affect, and then contrasting that with kind of constructively working through, possibly mm. in, in therapy or by writing about that experience. Mm. And so what one wants, you know, what one wants to do is to uh, find a way to constructively work through that experience. And Pennebacher's work suggests that writing about it is a good way to organize it uh, in, your, in your mind and possibly uh, help take some of the sting out of those uh, persisting uh, negative impacts as opposed to just ruminating in an unproductive way and kind of being captured by the experience. But when you, when you write about it, you know, you talk about truth a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Is it possible that, I mean, is there any such thing as truth in memory? I mean, I know that's a very broad question, but I mean, maybe part of that healing process is reconstructing truth to accommodate what you can handle emotionally. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a fair characterization, but more generally, if we talk about truth in memory, um, yeah, we can say that there's an objective standard against which uh, memory can be compared. 
And in fact, that's one of the basic tenets uh, uh, methodologically of laboratory experiments on memory. One of the reasons why we do experiments in the lab is that we can control the input to memory. We know what at a perceptual level you experience, then we can see later on what you remember and we can see to what extent it does your memory match um, match features of the original experience or to, to what extent uh, do you, do you dis distort it? So, you know, ultimately for memory, uh, truth is, is subjective. And what you're remembering is very much influenced again by your, your uh, current knowledge, your beliefs, your needs, your motivations, all those things uh, impact the way in which you remember a past experience. Uh, but there is, you know, there are elements of objective reality against which we can measure measure that experience. Now, one of the places where you see this um, dynamic having, you know, major consequences is an eyewitness identification, yeah. where one of the things we've learned over the years now is that the most prominent uh, feature of wrongful convictions of individuals who are exonerated of crimes based on D DNA, the most common thing that put them there in the first place is some form of eyewitness identification. Roughly 70% of these cases, if you go to the uh, website of the Innocence Project who tracks yeah. these things. So there's a case where, uh, you know, again, we, 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 you know, you have a question of did that person accurately identify an individual who committed a crime? And we know that sometimes they don't. So there is an objective standard against which we can test memory. And when you deviate from that standard, and there are good reasons, and we understand as memory researchers why, you know, to some extent why that happens, it can have major consequences in everyday life. Is that the same reason they don't accept lie detector tests now? as you know, in court anymore? Um, no, I wouldn't say it's, it's the, the, the same reason or the same thing there. I think there are, you know, somewhat two separate issues there about, you know, the question of the reliability of, of lie detection. Uh, but uh, we do know that memories can be inaccurate and those, you know, and that there's no uh, infallible way of telling the difference between a true and a false memory. We've done a lot of work in my lab, really starting in the mid 1990s using neuroimaging techniques such as PET scanning, positron emission tomography, and then after that, uh, functional MRI, functional magnetis, magnetic resonance imaging scanning, where we and, and others uh, have done this work as well. Uh, we put people uh, in the scanner we may input them a list of words or maybe pictures. And then later on, we test them. We test their memories under conditions where we know it's likely that they're going to misremember, falsely mm -hmm. remember some of the items that we showed them uh, previously. Uh, so, you know, one very well-known paradigm in memory research for inducing a certain kind of a false memory, false recognition, is a, a paradigm is originally discovered by the psychologist James Deese back in the 1950s, and then it was revived in the 1990s by the cognitive psychologists uh, Henry Rodiger and Kathleen McDermott. And in this paradigm, you, you hear a list of words that are all related to one another. 
candy, sour, sugar, bitter, good taste, tooth, nice, honey, soda, chocolate, heart, cake, eat, pie. You hear a list of words like that. And then later on, I'm going to give you a, rec a recognition test. And now I'm going to scan your brain while this is happening. And I'm going to uh, put up, for example, the word taste and ask you, was that one of the words on the list that I uh, that you heard earlier in the experiment? And that was one of the words that I just said, taste. So if you said, yeah, that was on the list, you would be right. And then I might put in a, uh, show you a word like point. And you would say, no, no, that wasn't on the list because that has nothing to do with any of the words that I mentioned. And then I would throw in the critical word sweet. Was that one of the words on the list? And most people, and probably some people watching or listening to this podcast, will claim with high confidence that sweet was on the list, but it wasn't. But it's the word that is related to all those words that I said, candy, sour, sugar, bitter, etc. So now the question is, if we have you in the fMRI scanner, and you've heard a list of words, like the ones, uh, one I read out, and we show you taste, that word was really on the list, and you say, yeah, I remember that, versus we show you sweet, and you say, yeah, I remember that one, but it wasn't really on the list. Can we tell the difference in the brain between the true memory and the false memory? And the answer is, yeah, to a limited degree, we can. There are some differences uh, between the true and the false memory. Uh, we, have, we showed that initially, and others have, have shown similar phenomena over the years. And then you ask the question, okay, if you can do that, um, can you now use this in, in the courtroom? Yeah. And we're not really at the point where you can, you can use it in the courtroom yet. We see some of these differences in studies where we're looking at, you know, a group of individuals, we're using many lists. I just gave you one example. We average across to get a strong signal. We average across the participants. We average across lists. But of course, in the courtroom, we want to know about one event, whether this is a true memory or a false memory. And there's been some progress recently in showing that we can get some, uh, some distinction in the brain, even for one event, but it's really not to the point where we can use it yet confidently in the courtroom. However, I could see down the road this having profound implications for justice in the courtroom, right? I mean, because so much, so many people are put away for that reason, as you point out. Yeah, um, and we, we need better methods to make this very important distinction. We're just not at the point in our neuroimaging research mm -hmm. yet where we can confidently apply it to one person for one event uh, you know, in a high stakes situation like the courtroom, but we are making progress. I, I'm just one or two more questions and then we'll wrap up. Um, as a storyteller, I'm very obviously I'm in the business of words. And one of the things that fascinated me was a chapter you wrote on how if you end a sentence with a particular word, um, it really might affect somebody's memory of a particular event just based on where you put a word in a sentence, for example. Maybe you could just comment on that for a second. Um, I think what the study you're referring to there was one in which uh, the the preceding context of the sentence uh, uh, biases your interpretation one one way or another. So I think the more general point would be that your yeah your memory for any word in a sentence is going to uh, be influenced by the preceding context. You may interpret the word differently uh, depending on what. Uh, you know, what the preceding context of the sentence is, and that will have 
downstream consequences uh, for your memory. So in other words, just by the way you frame a sentence, you can manipulate memory. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Which is, 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 is very helpful to me, by the way, <laughs> as a practitioner. Um, and also as a, somebody who collects stories, it's, it's very, very interesting to me. Um, in concluding, um, I know you're, you're celebrating this 20th anniversary edition. Um, you, you mentioned one of the changes, but what are some of the other um, ways that you added? For example, did you look at the latest studies in neuro, neuroscience? Um, I'm curious how you updated your, your book. The way, yeah, that's a good question. The way I did it was um, for each of the seven sins, and then for this concluding chapter, making the point that these sins have adaptive aspects, I, I looked at two developments over, over the past two decades that I thought were particularly interesting uh, uh, from the perspective of memory research and everyday implications. And in some cases, I talked about you know purely psychological aspects. In other cases, for example, um, one of the one of the updates for the chapter on misattribution, that's misattribution is where we uh, misattribute the source of our memory. So in the exam in the experimental example we just went over for sweet, you, you say, oh, I remember that you, you know, I heard that word earlier. No, that's a misattributed memory. Uh, you didn't actually hear it earlier. So in the uh, in the update for the chapter uh, on the sin of misattribution, uh, I have a section called Have We Found the Truth Machine Yet? And I go over some of the issues that we discussed about using neuroimaging to discuss, distinguish between true and false memories. Uh, for others, for example, for the chapter on transience, uh, one of the things I talk about is the impact of technology on memory. There's a lot of concern out there that because we're relying on Google and our smartphones that we may actually, and GPS, that we may actually be unknowingly creating impairments on our own memory. So I, I discussed some of the work there. I'm not wow. quite as alarmist as some other people are that we're all be, going to become a bunch of uh, amnesic patients because we rely on GPS. But there are some interesting findings that I discussed that you know, do suggest that there can be neg some negative as well as positive impacts of te uh, technology uh, on memory. And so I discussed a host of uh, issues. Wow. I get into fake news and the illusion of truth that we talked about earlier when I talk about uh, some of the updates uh, on the sin of uh, suggestibility. And then in the concluding chapter where I talk about adaptive aspects of memory, one of, to my mind, one of the important developments uh, over the past two decades, and I have a personal stake in this because we've worked on this a lot in my lab, is the idea that some of the inaccuracies and distortions in memory arise because our memories, while they help us to remember the past, are at least as important for imagining and planning for the future. So we've done a lot of work in my lab showing that there are very striking similarities, both neural and cognitive, between remembering the past and imagining the future. And at a theoretical level, what I have tried to argue is that our memories, specifically our episodic memories, are really uh, very flexible and allow us to take bits and pieces of past experience, recombine them, and run simulations of upcoming future events based on our past experience. And that's a very good thing, an adaptive aspect of memory that we 
can use it flexibly to plan for the future, but that very flexibility may contribute to some of these memory distortions that we talked about. So I have a section uh, in the concluding adaptive uh, aspects chapter uh, talking about some of that work. My very first job, um, and I shouldn't have had it, was working with sexually abused kids with no training. And I intuitively got them to share stories of play, for example, because I knew play was joyous and it, it wouldn't. But what it, one of the things I saw in their faces was, um, you know, th there was a happiness and a joy in, in, the, in the memory. And I later on, many years later, read that in just imagining something um, happy, for example, having um, gang members reimagine a, a more joyous life for themselves, you actually physiologically change um, the brain chemistry, your cortisol levels go down, your, you know, your stress hormone reduces, you, you have a, a heightened sense of pleasure. And I wonder if that's part of the reason we're able to um, imagine a future is that we're literally changing all sorts of hormones by imagining all sorts of chemicals are, are actually changing as if we're recreating that experience. Yeah, that aspect of it, we haven't really looked at. Um, so I don't have a lot to say about that. But uh, more generally, the critical point that you, we and others have documented is that when you imagine a future or other hypothetical experiences, you are engaging many of the same brain regions as when you remember a mm -hmm. past experiences, past mm -hmm. experiences that they all seem to rely on a common underlying uh, network of brain regions. Now, there are some differences. And of course, we can tell the difference between memory and imagination. Otherwise, we, if we couldn't, we would be in a lot of trouble. But the similarities are very, very striking and may contribute to the kind of phenomena you, you just described. And is this where your latest research is going towards future thinking? Is this? Yeah, we've been doing that now for really a little over a decade, and we're continuing to work on that, trying to understand uh, how we use memory to think about the future, both at psychological and neural levels. And we've been doing some work lately, kind of a, an offshoot of that work on imagination, specifically on memory and creativity, a very related topic where uh, we've been looking at some of the neural underpinnings of creative thought and how that relates to uh, memory and ways in which memory uh, can, uh, can enhance uh, creativity. I could go on and on, but I won't take any more of your time, but I just really wanna thank you so much. And um, I really will look forward to reading all about your, your newest research. Well, great. Uh, enjoy talking hope, and uh, thanks for having me. I hope I wasn't too unscientific with you. No, not at all. Thank you so much. And I wish you all the best. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.